Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Hey, welcome. You guys doing good this morning? We awake? We ready to go? Let's, uh, let's jump right into Scripture this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. I invite you just to turn there with me. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can read it on the screen along with us. Uh, we're reading the rest of chapter 4 today. And so I'm jumping in, verse 17, if you want to read along. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, neighbor, for we are members one to another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't come before you lightly this morning. We are so grateful and uh, in a celebratory spirit. God, we are thankful uh, that we live in a nation where we get to celebrate uh, the liberties that are given to us to express our faith freely and openly. We recognize that's not a privilege that's granted all over this world. And so I pray that in that celebratory spirit, God, that we would come and we'd not grow lukewarm. Even though we have no real persecution here that other people face in the world, God, would we, um, would we still be desperate for you? Would we still be hungry for you, uh, even in a place where, where living out your faith is, is rather easy? Jesus, I'm grateful for all the men and women who have paid the ultimate price for this country to represent her ideals and to, to protect her ideals that we were founded in, God. And, and, we, and we come before you today not a, not acting like our country, our nation is perfect, but we come longing and expecting that we would be a part of the, uh, part of the solution, that we, would, that we would long to see your kingdom come here on this earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, we love you, and I pray that you would let the, let this, let the scripture speak for itself today. Let us see you clearly. Don't let me get in the way of what you're trying to say, how you're trying to meet with your people in this building today, Jesus. We love you, and uh, we're excited to see what you might do in us and through us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, I started with a Charles Spurgeon quote last week. I thought this week I would start with a Ravi Zacharias quote. If you haven't picked up on my game by now, I just try and quote people who are smarter than me so that it makes me sound smarter than I actually am. (laughs) 
It's a free tip. I would employ it in your own life. You're welcome to. But um, Ravi Zacharias, if you don't know who he is, he recently passed away. He, he lost his life to cancer just a couple months ago. Uh, but Ravi is an internationally known apologist. And so what he does is he would hit Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, would, would go around and would argue or debate or present the Christian worldview, the Christian perspective, and he would debate people of a counter perspective. So either atheists or just non-Christians, other, other faith-based people who, who weren't believers. And so he'd go and he'd argue, and, and I'm going to pull a quote up, but before I give it to you, just kind of to understand the context, um, how, this, how this response comes is somebody's questioning him, an atheist is questioning him, and they're saying, uh, kind of the classic example, you've probably heard it before, you've probably heard this request before, but like, how could such a good, big, strong, powerful God exist, and yet there's so much evil in the world? Right, we've all heard that question. Here's his answer to it. Ravi says, when you say there's too much evil in this world, you assume that there is good. Like there is actually a thing that is called good. There is actually a thing that is called evil. When you assume that there's good and evil, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law. And that on that basis of the moral law is which you differentiate between good and evil. So you have to have a law that helps you differentiate, distinguish between good and evil. There has to be a moral law. But if you assume a moral law, you must posit or you must start the argument off with a moral law giver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral law giver, then there's no moral law. And if there's no moral law, then there's no good. And if there's no good, there is no evil. What then is your question? Yeah, and it's great. And I would encourage you definitely to look him up. Uh, Ravi's, he's one of those guys, I, I was in a conversation with somebody between services. He's one of those guys that's really, really, really smart. And yet when he talks to you or when you listen to him, you don't feel really dumb. And I can appreciate that about people who are really smart and they can help me out a little bit, you know? And so uh, Ravi frequently argues around this idea or this principle. He uses it a lot, uh, this idea of morality, he starts with a lot of his arguments off talking about the futility of what he calls subjective morality. Subjective morality is the air that we all breathe right now. It's, the, it's, it's not that there is a set morality, but that morality in and of itself, the ability to distinguish between good and evil is up to our own determination. I will determine what's good. I will determine what's evil. And maybe more uh, more broadly than just an individual taking this stance, our whole societies and cultures and people groups who say, no, 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 this is what's good and this is what evil. And they, and they rewrite what morality is. And so I think the, the best example of why this is so harmful is if you look at what's happening in Southeast Asia, and we partner with Life for the Innocent, part of your money that you give to the church goes right to Life for the Innocent, um, and we partner with them. They are, they are um, involved in uh, rescuing, renewing, and restoring children that are caught up in the trafficking industry in Southeast Asia. Okay? Now, the reason that the trafficking industry in Southeast Asia is such a problem is it is not because, like, the authorities and the police there can't, like, track down who the bad guys are. That's not the problem. The problem is they have, developed a, they have developed a subjective morality. They have a caste system that allows the exploitation and the, um, and the use of children, the commoditization of children, is that it's not evil anymore. So it isn't a problem there. 
That's how they've determined. That's the morality that's been determined by the culture using the caste system. Right, and so they, they would say not all people are born equally. Some are born to be prestigious and to be wealthy and to consume things, and others are born just to be consumed. And we hear that, and it just grates against us, right? Like, that's, that's not where we would ever land. Why? Because we don't, we don't belong to subjective morality. We belong to absolute morality, that the God of the Bible has determined what morality is, and because he's immutable, because he's unchanging, that morality is what it's going to be for forever. He's determined what the rules are. He's, he's set them, and if we don't like them, it doesn't mean he has to change any of them. He is God. He is all-powerful. He has determined what's good, right, true, and lovely, and what is evil. And so he sets the course for us using an absolute version of morality. And that's what we get to stand on as Christians. And I think all of us really as believers should be versed in this conversation, but it's not the point of my sermon today. It's not, it's not where I actually want to take us today. Uh, where I want to take us today is actually more the question that I think this verse lends, us, lends itself to is, if I know the rules, why can't I follow them? And I know I can't follow them. And so who's going to help me? That's what I think is answered in this text today because God also is like, I think a lot of times people try and make Christianity out to be this like, well, you know, I just really got to get to know this book so that I would get to know what the rules are because if I don't know what the rules are, I might break them. But really the picture of Christianity that the Old Testament would paint is saying there's coming a time when, when the law is not going to be written on stone. It's not going to be written on a tablet, on, on a pay, piece of paper, but the law is actually going to be on your heart. It's going to be written on your mind. And therefore, what we can see as we look out in the world is everybody knows what God's rules are. We know them. They're, they're intuitively like hardwired into our soul what sin is and what it is not. We're, 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 we're born this way. We're created this way. But then we kind of let our subjective morality culture that we live in, and, and you have all these different negative things that impact that. And you have people that scream out like, my body, my choice over the issue of abortion, which only applies to abortion, by the way. It doesn't apply to masks. But we're not going to go there this morning. All right, we're not going to go there. It's the day after Independence Day. We're just not going to touch it today. But you have this kind of air that we're breathing. And yet we have this book that we, that we don't have to necessarily read all of it to know what God's law is. Amen? It's in us. We know what it is, and yet we can't follow it, and we need help being more obedient. Maybe the word there shouldn't be obedient, but being more uh, like Christ. Amen? And so I think the best way to tackle this is actually going to be to take it uh, flipped. So we're going we're gonna to dissect the last half of the verse first, and then we're going to come up and answer the questions of the whys and the hows at the top part of the verse, okay? So the first one, I don't want to just also skip through the morals because I think there's some good principles that we can learn from them. Because the other, the other kind of negative cast view of the Bible is that it's just kind of some stuffy book full of rules, and it's meant to kind of make you conform to this rigid version of life where you're hyper-obedient to all these rules. But what God would say, what David would say in the Psalms is your word is like honey on my lips. I meditate on your word day and night, night and day. Like, just like we're thinking, like it's, it, the law is meant to, it's given to us to facilitate our flourishing, not our stifling as human beings. But so as we look through these, I want to consider some of the implications of some of the do's and don'ts that Paul's lays out, Paul lays out here. And then we'll jump back to the top part of the verse and answer maybe some of our bigger questions. So, Starting in verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, having a put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, 
for we are members one to another. I can't think of a more elementary place to start than just Paul saying like, hey, gotta be honest. You gotta tell the truth. Is this not like the first place we start in parenting? And this, like, if you can go back in your mind, like it, that's the, one of the first things that your parents taught you as a kid. You gotta be honest. My mom used to tell me that anytime I'd lie, my pupils would go like in and out. And to this day, I still don't know if she's telling me the truth. I thought that she just used that to bust me when I was lying and it worked all the time. Right now, I'm in this kind of funny stage of my parents and Katie and I where, where like it used to be really easy to tell if my kids were lying to me. Like we'd be like, did you clean the basement? Uh, yeah, dad, we cleaned the basement. All right, let's go look. Wait, no, no, no. Oh, hold on, hold on. Let me, uh, I'll be right back. Now it's more like they both come up to me. They both kind of have their case of what's just happened downstairs and why this person's crying. And I'm like, I don't know who's lying anymore. Like, I don't even know what to trust or who to believe anymore. Like, it's getting more difficult. And so I can't think of a better place to start for Paul saying, like, you got to speak the truth. You got to be honest. And yet you'd be hard pressed to find a rule that's more frequently broken. Amen? Amen. Because we've, we've made white lies acceptable in our faith. Where we say, ah, oh, you know, and I'm just going to, you know, it's not going to hurt anybody if I just kind of tell this little lie. Not a big deal. But if you have a habit of practicing the small lies, you will tell the big lies as well. We have a practice of, of telling half-truths, which are whole lies as well, right? If you don't tell the whole truth, then you're leaving out something important. You're leaving out something pivotal. We also will like conflate the truth. We'll go beyond the truth. We'll exaggerate either so we get, we get attention or we sell somebody on our point of view. We'll exaggerate what's actually true, which is, which is missing honesty as well. We've got to be honest as members one to another. I love that Paul ties it to the fact of this like unity idea that we've been hitting on the last few weeks. We have this unitedness with one another because of what Christ has done for us. And so if this community here isn't going to be a space where we're going to be honest with one another, then what are we really doing? How are we helping our body grow if this isn't a place where we can come and just be authentic and real and genuine about who we really are? We, might, we have to be honest with each other. That's just the first reminder. The second one, I love that this is a verse in the Bible. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I love that the command is not to be angry. Like it's not, don't be angry. Don't be angry. Like there are times, there are righteous times when you can be upset, where things can make you mad. I talk about that thing in Southeast Asia and I'm, I'm angry about it. I want to continue to just give like life for the innocent more and more money so they can just like end this thing so they can help keep rescuing. Like Sam, we get texts from him. He's, he's our partner over there. We'll probably have to cut this off in the podcast now because I said it out loud, but um, like 1,500 kids at a time, just buses full. And I hear that and I'm just like, ah, like I'm glad we saved them. But what is the system that allows this to happen, Right. We can get angry, but then we don't sin. We don't let the sun go down on our anger is that next phrase. So, so don't take this like to be a literal amount of time. It's not like if you fight with your wife, you know, after like sundown on Saturday, then you really technically I have all the way till sundown on Sunday to take care of that, right? Uh, that's not what Paul is getting at. He's not getting at a specific amount of time. But what he's saying here, when he says, don't give an opportunity to the devil, he says, don't let that anger fester inside of you. It's not a specific amount of time as much as it is to what emotions are swelling inside of you. So just, I hope we can just continue to be a place where, where if something happens, like tension points are going to happen, frustrations are going to happen, there's going to be conflict between us. We're human beings. But when those happen, I hope that we would deal with them speedily 
We wouldn't let time go by because here's what happened. Please, okay, like level with me. Okay, this, I know it's the 4th of July last night. You're all filled up with barbecue and whatever meat you ate yesterday. And it was probably glorious and awesome. And amen. That's great. Just let's be honest, okay? You have, a, you have some conflict with somebody. You get into a moment of tension. You step away from that conversation. I don't know, maybe, I hope you're kind of like me where you start to then have a conversation with that person, only the conversation's in your head. Yeah. Right? And I'll tell you, it always goes perfectly when it's in my head. I know exactly what they're going to say. I know exactly what to say to it. That conversation goes great. And then, you, and then I start to think about it more and think about this conversation that I maybe get more mad than I was before. Yeah, they, they really were wrong. Like I get all fired up and I get all mad about stuff. And it's like, okay, wait, hold on. What Paul's showing me here is that if I let this go too long in my heart, then I'm going to give the opportunity to the devil to work his way into the conversation. So it's not wrong to be angry, but if you let that sit too long, if it starts to swell inside you, the enemy's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And so if you let those emotions sit for too long and swell and start to puff up and get exaggerated, then he's just longing to jump into that, to mess, to bring division, to bring, to bring death, to bring hurt, to bring shame, to heap on guilt. That's what he does. So we can't give him that opportunity. We have to resolve things quickly. I love just this idea of, man, he did something, hey, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to speak it in love. And we're going to deal with this conflict, conflict quickly. We're going to nip them while they're small and we're not going to let them blow all the way up. I think it's just a great principle to live out your life with. Verse 28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. If I could kind of say this in my own language here, I would say what Paul is asking for us to do is to offer redemptive opportunities to people. So you could take this like to the level of employment, like let the thief do honest work with his hands. But I think it's a principle that's greater than that. It extends far beyond just how we employ people. But we have to come to a place as Christians where we go, you know what? The God of the universe redeemed me. I'm going to offer redemptive chances to somebody sitting across from me. Even if I know their history, I know their backstory. I know the mistakes they made. But I'm still going to open myself up to, to, if they're saying that the Holy Spirit's working in them, if they're saying that Jesus is transforming them, then I'm going to give them opportunities to see that play out in their life. My, my car insurance guy, of all people, has one of the best quotes. He says, if, you, if you're not being taken advantage of from time to time, then you're probably not being generous enough with anyone so if, you're not, if we're not opening ourselves up to some risk for somebody to burn us, then we're probably not extending the generosity that God's first extended to us well enough into the world. Now, now there's, there's some ways we can do this wisely. Like if a guy just got out of jail for embezzling money for years and years and years, I'm probably not going to hire him right away as my accountant. Okay? But I'm going to offer him redemptive chances. I'm going to let him see that restoration. If God is doing a work in somebody, then I want to partner with that. I want to see that grow. And that might mean that I get burnt a little bit from time to time, but I'm also just going to extend the redemption that's been first given to me and I'm going to give it to people outside of me. The next one that he says, the last kind of four verses, starting in verse 29, going all the way through 32, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. And then he jumps down, verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So I think this really boils down to the topic of gossip, right? And if you really want to talk about a sin that the church has made like a JVC, like maybe a C team on the bench, 
next to the water cooler level sin. It's gossip. Right? Like I know we have our varsity like starting sins over here. We could probably name a few, right? Like those are the really bad ones. But then, you know, like gossip, like, like what, is it, what does it really matter? It's gossip. It's just talking about people. What if they're not even present? Does it even really matter that much? It does matter. And the way that Paul shows us that it matters is he has this sentence that kind of hinges the two thoughts together in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit's role, just as kind of a reminder for all of us, I know you all know this, but just a reminder. The Holy Spirit is longing to convict people where they need convicting, to build people up where they need building up, all the while like empowering us and sustaining us in this process to look more and more like Jesus. That's why we have the Holy Spirit, is to build, build people up, not, not to puff them up in their own self-righteousness, but to build them up to look all the more like Christ. And so what gossiping talk actually does is it, it works contrary to the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. You thought about it that way. Maybe if we would think about it that way, we'd be much less inclined to participate in gossip. Because I know you don't gossip, but you get caught next to the person who's gossiping about that person. You just happen to join in. And it's actually, maybe it's probably not even gossip at that point. It's just venting, right? We've all been there. We've all been there. We've all participated in it. But I think if we would see it in a way that actually says, no, wait, the Holy Spirit longs to build this person, to restore them, to reconcile them back to God. Why would I let my words work contrary to what the Holy Spirit's doing in that person's life? Even if that person, like it's the most annoying person in the world, I get it. God still wants to save them. God still wants to redeem them. God still wants to restore them. And so let's not let our words deconstruct what the Holy Spirit has been building up all these years. Like James paints this picture, right? The, the power that's in the tongue and the power that's in our words. And it's just like a small spark that can set a whole forest on fire. What if the gossiping talk that's coming out of your mouth, even though you're not saying it to the person that you're talking about, what if that's the thing that the enemy uses to burn down all the work that they've been doing in their life for the last few years? Years of progress by the Holy Spirit can be squelched, can be killed, can be burnt in a moment. I think we ought to consider it a little more seriously. So there's four rules there. Be honest, don't anger fester, give people redemptive opportunities, don't gossip. And what I would argue is the Bible has some more like, uh, let's just say spicier rules than that that are a lot more debated these days, right? You can think of some, hopefully, right? Are you guys alive this morning? You good? Okay. Bible's got some really like debated rules. These aren't, these aren't them. These are like universally taught and accepted rules. Like I'm pretty sure my, my kid's school has some of these rules plastered on their walls, right? Like everybody agrees with these things. You got to be honest. Don't talk meanly about other people, right? Like these things are always there. And yet how many of you have done this perfectly? Here, here's kind of like why I think we have to talk about the why. Who, who in this room, they know of a rule that they ought to do and yet you keep breaking it. So there's two kinds of people in the room right now. Those of you who have your hand up or just raise your hand, and there's liars. <laughs> That's it. That's why we have to talk about the why. So why does this happen? Why, well, we've got to jump all the way back up to verse 17. He says, now this I, 
say and testify, that testify word, it would be like this. He's begging, he's begging that we would get this, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Gentiles is, is a lot of times used for just any non-Jewish person. And here it's, he's referencing people who are not following Christ, people who don't belong to Christ. He's, here's what happens. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from their life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Not sensuality, you think of like one category of sin there, but what that's actually saying is anything that like, I just do what my senses desire. I just do what I feel. I just do what I want in a moment, okay? And he's saying, you've just given yourself over. You have this callous effect that's building up. You have this hardening of your heart that's happening. And again, he's not just saying, hey, that's how Gentiles live. So just kind of pay attention. Be, be aware that people out there, they live that way. But he's, Paul's begging here. He's asking. He's, he's just asking us to consider that we wouldn't live this way. So he's, it's not just something for non-believers. It's something for us to pay attention to as well. That, that sin has this hardening effect, this numbing effect to the Spirit of God, to the workings of Jesus in our life. Sin, I think oftentimes we miscategorize sin as just one act it is one act. Like you could say like, I lied. I gossiped, right? I, whatever you want to put this in there, like sin is an act, but it's also always active. It's never stagnant in one moment of sin. Because like, if we go back to James again, what he says is that, that what sin is, is what happens when the, the like malicious, maligned desires of my heart that are contrary to the heart of God. We all have them somewhere. When those end up getting crossed with a temptation, that gives birth to sin. Sin then, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So sin is always in this process of taking you somewhere. Even if it was just one single time that you made this sin, sin will always try and take you back to that moment. It'll try and always heap shame, heap guilt onto you for that moment. It'll try and redefine who you are because of that moment. Sin is always pulling you somewhere. It's always trying to pull you apart from God, who is the source of life, which is in effect to bring forth your death. Sin's chief aim is to separate us from God. And so sin here, Paul, Paul's saying, it has this kind of like calloused effect, this hardening effect in our hearts. Um, I, I haven't played basketball in a while. We played for the first time the other night, played for like an hour and a half, and I didn't have any skin left on my pinky toe when I was done. Felt great. Felt awesome, right? Especially in the shower afterwards. We're just like, yeah, that's, that's right there. Like it hurts right there. I wish, though, like back when I played basketball more frequently, back before I had kids in my life, I had these calluses on my feet. I didn't feel the things that were happening. It's not that there wasn't friction. It's not that there wasn't tension. I just didn't feel it because I had calluses. There's a callus that's being built up. If you're entertaining sin in your life, you're, there's this deadening effect in your spirit to sense what God is doing around you. That's why sin is so dangerous. And that's why all of us, we've all given ourselves over to sins. We've all had desires. Those desires have all crossed temptation. That temptation at some point or another in your life has produced sin. You just got to be mindful that sin doesn't bear death then as a fruit in your life. Now, that's the like, dun, dun, dun. Like that's the scary part, right? But then fortunately, Paul also offers us a remedy here. He says, um, verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Amen. 
assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, there's three components that he's about to go through. He says, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He also uses in Romans chapter 12, this idea of your mind being transformed. Don't be conformed to the image of this world. Be by transformed by the renewing of your mind. The third one, he says, and then lastly, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness and holiness. So there's three different things here. I got to put off my old self. I got to be continually transformed and renewed in my mind so that I would think and look more like Christ. But then I also got to put on the righteousness and holiness of Christ. So, so to put off, Paul uses a lot stronger words when he writes the letter to the Colossian church. He says, put to death then your former manner of life. Jesus uses some pretty strong words when he's talking about sin. He says, if your hand keeps causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eye keeps causing you to sin, gouge it out. Now, praise God, Jesus isn't talking literally there. He's just saying, man, you know what? It would be better for you to go through this life with no eyes than it would for you to suffer eternally for the things that your eye kept causing you to stumble in. But, but what he's saying here is more in principle, not like, okay, if you sin, gouge your eye out, because that would leave us all blind and handless in a hurry. You know what I'm saying? And so what he is saying, though, is that we better be approaching sin with a serious, serious intent to put it to death. You cannot entertain sin. Like, I know, I know that some people get convinced that you can keep sin at an arm's length, right? I joked about this at the beginning of quarantine. Like, you, you're convinced that you can socially distance yourself from sin. Like, as long as I wear a mask and as long as I keep it six feet away, then I'll be fine. Like, I can keep it right here, but, but sin's desire is always to have you. The, the enemy is always crouching at your door. He's waiting to, to take you. He's waiting to have you. And sin, what it's longing to do, again, is to bring forth death. And so you better be the first one to act with death towards it and put it to death. You have to take the dramatic step in your life to kill the sin that you have going on. And, and the focus is, is that's not how I walk anymore. I'm not going to walk in that direction anymore because I'm going to walk in this direction. That direction isn't worthy of my new calling that I have from Jesus. And so I put it off. I put it away. I'm dramatic about getting sin out of my life. But the next step then is to then be transformed, to be renewed. See, all, all religions in the world offer you some sense of like a moral operating code. Do these things. Don't do these things. If you do these things and don't do these things, then you will ultimately end up blank. All religions, it all boils down something like behave in a certain way and get this byproduct. We good with that? Only Christianity is the one where the, the Godhead, that God looks down, sees you in the middle of your sin, sees you in the middle of that circumstance where you are utterly helpless to change yourself. And he says, hey, rather than calling you to behave in a certain way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay heaven aside step down onto earth. I'm going to live the perfect life that you could never live. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to die the punishment that you deserve to bear. And if you would just put your faith in me, then by my grace, I will give you the righteousness that I walked with in this life. And what that does to us is what it offers us in Christianity that's unique to every other world system where God actually steps down to help. And he says, I'm not just going to make it so that you would behave. I think we kind of can reduce Christianity to this level of moralism where it's just like all about the behavior that we have. 
But what Christianity really begs us for is to be transformed in the things that we actually desire. So that I wouldn't just like, like, because we can motivate ourselves to behave based on a whole like slew of things, right? Like based on fear, based on pride, we can motivate ourselves to behave. Like I want to look a certain way. I want to feel a certain way to other people. I, I tell my kids when they're, when they're lying, like I tell them the consequences of lying. Your friends aren't going to trust you. I'm not going to trust you because you're getting shady. You're lying to me all the time. Right? So we can, we can motivate behavior a lot of ways, but only Christianity says, listen, no, I, I don't want just want to change your behavior. I want to change the heartbeat underneath that behavior. I want to I rewire you so that you long the things that I long for, so that your soul craves and wants to see the things that my soul wants to crave, like that it longs to see in this world. You know what I'm saying? It's this transformation that God wants to do in us, that he wants to actually rewire the things that we desire so that our sensual, like what we give ourselves over to, the senses that we want, those things actually change. I actually want different things. I've tasted and seen the beauty of God. And so now I want to focus on him because these other things are just, it's all just piling up rubbish compared to him. And so we are putting off our old way of life. We're being transformed continually. We're being made to look more and more like him. And the last one that we need to do is we need to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's been my experience hanging around church people long enough. That there's a lot of you that really understand, you understand that the sin is bad. You understand you're, you're maybe hyper moral in some ways. And, and it's a good thing. Like, praise God, I hope my kids have the hyper moral testimony in some ways. You know what I'm saying? Because acting like I'm crazy right now in saying that. Like I want my kids to behave. You know what I'm saying? But it's also at the same time, especially people who have grown up around church for a long time where I've experienced this. I see Jesus as Lord. I see him as righteous. I see him as holy. And they're unable to embrace the intimacy that comes with him already determining that you're righteous. It's this theme that's woven into scripture. Like God uses the picture of clothing which I think is wonderful. And I think of the parable of the wedding garment where the guy's kicked out because he's not wearing the right clothes. And, and what, what, what we're learning in that moment is that um, the kingdom of God, we're kind of like getting invited to this big wedding ceremony at the end of time. But what it's gonna take to get in is the right clothes. Like you gotta be dressed for the occasion. And my clothes, like I think of, uh, they look like, what do they look like before God? Well, my righteousness looks like filthy rags before Jesus. That's kind of how I'm dressed right now, you know? But what Jesus does is he says, hey, listen, you're a mess. Your clothes are a mess. But here I brought you these. And he hands us this perfectly clean, immaculate garment suited for a wedding, suited for the consummation of all things in the end when he longs to restore heaven with earth. Right? So it's this idea that you have to embrace who God has called you. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, then he's already determined that you're righteous. He's already determined that you're holy and blameless, not because of anything you earned or did on your own, but because he's graciously extended that to you. He's invited you in. And so we got about nine minutes left and um, I'd like to just pray for a moment. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like for you to just pray where you're at in your space. So if you all would just stand with me as we kind of close the service to pray. If you're like, oh, is he gonna make us stand for five minutes? I've been standing since like 6.30. So let's go, let's go. You can do it. 
I think there's kind of three categories of people as I was considering who we might pray for and how we might pray. But I think there's maybe people in here and you've never, you've never made the choice to commit yourself to Christ. And so you, you feel enslaved to sin. And the truth is, is that you will stay enslaved to sin until you embrace the grace that God's called you out of that sin. And then he will empower you to no longer want the things that you used to want, to no longer give yourself over to the things you used to give yourself over to. And so I want to pray for you. If you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, like Jesus is the remedy to you actually not just behaving, but actually like feeling different, craving different, thinking different. I also want to pray for people who are just, uh, maybe you've been saved for a long time. Maybe you've been saved for a few years. I, I don't know. You know Jesus, but sin is still entangling you. Right? Like you have that one sin and you, you know what it is right now and it just keeps calling and you keep picking up the phone. You're going to heaven. Your passport's stamped, but you just have this thing that you just, you, you can't seem to grit. You win sometimes. Man, I just, I lose more often than I would like to. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit, even right now in this moment, would just continue to transform you and renew your mind and renew your desires and renew your heart. The last category, I think, is for that camp. Uh, maybe you followed Jesus for a long time. Maybe, again, it's just like a few minutes, but you just are like, I need to embrace him as my dad who loves me. Like, I really get the Lord and Savior. I really get the behavior. I'm just I'm missing some intimacy there. I want to understand that he's for me. Ephesians 5 starts with this idea, be imitators of God as beloved children. Like have, you ever, have you ever just looked as God, to, like, to God as your dad? You're just chasing after him and he loves you and you love him. And I'm, I just want to be more like my dad, right? There's an irreverence that I think we can allow there, but man, that's like, that's a healthy spot to live when we balance these things out. And so I want to pray for each person. You, you know where you're at, you know your heart. And so let's just spend a moment. We got about six minutes before the end of service and let's just pray. And so right where you're at right now, I pray that you would just fix your attention on Jesus. Lord, it's impossible for me to know every story. It's impossible for me to know every circumstance where everyone stands in this room with you. I just beg you, God, that you would meet people they're at right now. I love that you know where everyone is. Whether they need to receive you as Savior, whether they just need some help today, or whether they maybe need to break down some walls of legalism and this rigid approach to religion, they just need to embrace you as someone who loves them. over this room. I just, just focus your eyes on Jesus. Where are you at? Where's your heart? Jesus, for that person who doesn't know you, maybe for the first time today, they're hearing the, the gospel articulated. Maybe the, it's the first time they've heard it said this way. I pray that you would just meet them in that cry, God, and that they would just if that's you, would you just pray with me in this way? Jesus, I'm, I'm done pursuing my old way of life. I'm done trying to do this on my own, God. I am, I am repenting in this moment. I'm changing directions, fixing my eyes on you. And I believe that in the power of your resurrection, God, that you are going to give me the clean clothes 
the righteous heart. God, for people who are just caught up in sin today, pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken a newfound passion to get angry at that sin, to put it to death. We wouldn't entertain it anymore, but that your Holy Spirit would empower us now and sustain us in victory over that sin. If that's you today, I pray that you just kind of let it go right now. Like I just put that word on my heart, let it go. Just release it. It doesn't belong to you. That's the old you. It's not the you that Jesus has called you to be. And there's freedom in him and there's power found in him. Lord, for people who need to just experience you in a deeper and more intimate way today where we just embrace that, that yes, you are absolutely a Lord and Savior. You are, you are all powerful, almighty, all-knowing. And you're also madly in love with your creation. Would you just help us embrace that today? Jesus, we love you. So thankful that we get to come before you today, not in fear of any persecution. We just get to come, we get to worship, we get to sing songs. We get to focus on you. Pray that you continue to transform us, sustain us, help us live more and more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 